Love Talk Radio. Confidential. 
where we not only break the news, but we also make the news broadcasting from behind Inner Sanctum and through the darkness directly into your skull. If you dare, take a bizarre journey with us down the twisted lost highway as we rediscover the creature features from our childhood and re-examine the new monsters of today. You are listening to us on the Totally Driven Entertainment Radio Network in conjunction with HorrorNews.net. This week we have a fantastic show. It is a horror fan's guide to screenwriting and filmmaking with our special guest uh, on the first hour. We got uh, Steve Douglas Craig. He's the senior executive coordinator and story analyst with Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisition. Uh, and then also he's a screenwriting coach at the newscreenwriter.com. Uh, and then later on this evening, uh, we have uh, Mark and Chris, uh, filmmakers from Cryptic Pictures, joining us uh, to talk about their newest uh, podcast. Uh, so, uh, once again, it's going to be an exciting, exciting show. Uh, so, hey, uh, bear with us, and uh, uh, we're going to have some entertainment for you. Red Rock! Red Rock! Red Rock! Red Rock! Danny? Ed Ross! Red Ross! Ed Ross! Red Ross! Danny, what's the matter, huh? Red Ross! You having a bad dream? Danny? Well, Danny's not here, but uh, I, I think who is here is uh, Steve Douglas Craig. Um, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Michael. How you doing? Uh, very well. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Uh, you know, we got a lot to talk about. Um, and uh, did, did I did I get that um, that right? Because that's a long title. You are the senior executive coordinator at Sony and story analysis with Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisition. Yeah, yeah, I've been uh, working there for about nine years now, um, and uh, oh. I started out as a I started out as a senior executive assistant, um, and uh, you know I, I still do a lot. We're a very small group uh, within the Sony Pictures Entertainment structure. Um, and uh, we deal 85% with uh, acquisitions. Uh, but, yeah, I, I work as a senior executive uh, um, assistant to the president of the division as well as doing story analysis um, and work very closely with our financial analysts and business affairs guys. And um, So there's a, there's a lot of strings to that bow. Okay. Well, I mean, you, um, you obviously came a, a long way. Um, you were, um, you're from Australia, right? Yeah, yeah, I uh I've been living here for about gee, I want to say when did I get here? 2002. So I've been here a little while now, but uh, I'm originally from Australia. Um and uh grew up on the east coast there and and uh you know, spent a good deal of my childhood on on the, you know, in, in regional Australia before, you know, realizing I preferred city life <laughs> and uh I ended up uh, you know, uh, studying at the Queensland University of Technology uh, 
and spent a lot of time uh, working in the industry over there actually as a fight director. I started my career pretty much straight out of college um, choreographing fight scenes for some of the major theatres around the country. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, so um, do, you, um, do you have a fighting background or how, how did that come about? Yeah, it's weird. Uh, it, it was one of those things I was studying at the Queensland University of Technology, as I said, um, and I was doing a theatre program there and a film studies program. And I got to meet this guy uh, who was Australian, but he'd studied at Cornell and um, he was a member of the Society of American Fight Directors over here. And he was looking for um, he was looking for someone to train with uh, because when I started out in the work, there didn't really seem to be anybody uh, doing this kind of work in Australia. You know, a lot of the theatres were dealing with uh, stage combat using fencers and and uh, wrestlers, that kind of thing. So he trained me pretty much all through my college career. So by the time I left, um, it I managed to move to Sydney and, you know, uh, got a job teaching at the National Institute of Dramatic Art there, which is basically our Juilliard kind of thing. And, and, uh, and, uh, basically spread out into the industry and realized no one was kind of doing the work that I'd been trained in. Um, it was kind of trial by fire, to be honest with you. I ended up, you know, choreographing uh, with the Sydney Theatre Company and uh, the Victorian College of the Arts and NIDA and a lot of places because they just didn't have um, the skill set that uh, I'd been taught. I was kind of lucky. Okay. All right. So, I mean, that's, that's definitely um, a, a pretty cool background to... Uh, to kickstart everything. Now you, um, we came over. Um, let's uh, let's fast forward a little bit and, and talk about uh, your uh, AFI experience, if we could. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I uh, as I said, I spent years in the industry in Australia. You know, working as a choreographer and a director, and and uh, I'd always been a writer. You know, I'd uh, published poetry, and and uh, most of my writing experience existed in the theatre. Uh, and uh, when I came to the United States, well, this was probably 2000, 2001, uh, I was touring the world on an Australia Council for the Arts Grant. And, um, you know, I'd got to a stage in my career in Sydney working in the theatre where I, you know, I'd stopped learning, you know, and I, I wanted I wanted some more input. You know, I was at the top of my game as a, a choreographer over there. And so I started to look abroad and uh, the Australia Council over there gave me this grant. And so I took off for, for Canada and America and uh, even studied Commedia dell'arte down in the south of France for a little bit. And, and But I ended, up, uh, I ended up back in Washington, D.C., where I got a residency there for a little bit, working with a guy who was uh, choreographing um, at the Washington Opera and the Shakespeare Theatre over there and a whole lot of different places. And, and uh, ended up, uh, you know... Um, meeting my wife, my future wife, who's American, and we decided to settle down in Maryland there for a little bit, and, uh, you know, I spent a few oh, years okay. there, and then, yeah, and then and then basically, I, I was writing the whole time, you know, and, and I wasn't experienced as a screenwriter, you know, but I, I did come to it with a whole lot of understanding of character and, you know, three-act structure, and most of what I'd learned was from the theatre and, and working as an actor as well. Um, and uh, in 2004, I, you know, I had finished a screenplay, my first ever screenplay. 
you know, I, I decided I was working for the Washington Asia Times at that stage as a journalist uh, part time and doing a whole lot of different things, to be honest. But um, I decided to sit down and write a screenplay that had been bothering me. It was a story and I loved film. I'd always loved television and film. Um, and so I decided to write this thing and, and uh, you know, I pushed out 130 pages and, and then decided to read a few, you know, books, Sid Field's book and um, a lot of the, those kind of screenplay luminaries and managed to do a little bit of rewriting, but really I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and right. I was used to a, a more playwriting background, you know. Anyway, I finished sure. it and I, I, hand, I handed it to a guy and, and uh, that I knew and, and he read it and he said, you know, you should probably be doing this full time. Have you thought about that? And, and frankly, I hadn't. I'd never thought about doing anything like that. And, you know, I talked to my wife and, and she said, why don't you apply to, to, you know, some of the top programs and see how you go. And so that's what I did. You know, I, at that stage, I was, I was still waiting for a, a green card. And, uh, but I, you know, I applied to the American Film Institute Conservatory in 2004, 2005, and and uh, I got in, you know, um, which was uh, wow. it was we were kind of shocked. In some ways, I was I was applying, thinking uh, this is I'm just going to apply and see what happens. And right, right, they must have really liked what I, you know, really liked what I wrote. And it's a tough school to get into, and and so I was I and I had a lot of background, I had a lot of experience uh, behind me in storytelling. Um, and I think that helped a lot, you know, uh, they must have seen something there. And so in 2005, I'm, you know, I was off to yeah. California and the American Film Institute, you know, um, and it was a tremendous experience. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a kid anymore and I was looking for a very fast paced learning environment where you're just thrown into it. And at the AFI in a master's program like that, you are, you are thrown deep into it, you know, within two weeks oh, yeah. of landing, you know, you can only imagine. Within, two weeks, within two weeks of landing, I was, you know, I was suddenly writing the first of what would be four short films to make in my first year. So, oh, wow. it was well, a, it was were, a crazy uh, experience. What were they about? Um, uh, the, the first couple of ones that you wrote, if you can, uh, if you can say that. Well, one of them was uh, one of them was uh, set in a bowling alley, uh, and it was about this guy who worked at a bowling alley, and and he was he was in love with this girl who came in every Saturday night with all of her friends, but they were way out of his league, and and um, one night he he witnesses uh, a brutal attack on her, and manages to save her. It's kind of a Beauty of the Beast story, but set in a bowling alley. You know, it was uh, and it came off okay, I think. <laughs> you know, it was one of the one of the ones that I, I really enjoyed doing and the director uh, directing student I got to work with, Amin, um was was amazing. Uh, but that, I mean that was the okay. wonderful thing about AFI Conservatory too, is that it was so international, you know. I I was working with guys from the Israeli film school and Norwegian cinematographer students and it was a tremendous experience, you know. Um but yeah, it's it's one of those places where you just are immersed in it. You are immersed in filmmaking on every level and you get out of it what you put into it, you know? And one of the other stories that I, that I uh, wrote was, um, it was uh, set in a shop where, you know, um, these two elderly people are robbed at gunpoint um, a couple of days before their son arrives back and, and into their lives after being away for a long time. And 
he uh, comes back to try to get to know them and, and during the course of the short film they realized that it was the son that robbed them and was trying okay. to take wow. all of their shot from them. so you know it was just i i was i was you know the afi was about trying to find a voice you know what my voice was you know and i you know, as well as doing that, you're also writing a feature film, you know, and you're crewing on other people's short films and you're going to classes and you're doing, you know, there's a, it's like seven days a week. It's completely crazy. And I, I loved every minute of it. Um, <laughs> you really do find out, you really do find out if you really want to be in this business or not by going to something like that, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I, at that, as I said, at that stage, I was writing, uh, you're, you know, you do your four short films and, you're also uh, writing a, your first feature film as well, a script. And, uh, you know, my as I said, my AFI experience was uh, I hadn't found my voice. Even when I graduated, um, I, I really didn't have anything that was, that was producible for me. You know, uh, a couple of guys I went to school with, you know, they signed with big agents straight out of, straight out of uh, school and, you know, um, and uh, went on to work. One of them's kind of, just did one called Bastille Day, and he was, a, you know, writing on on a remake of Logan's Run, and I wanted that for myself, you know. <laughs> but I, you know, yeah, yeah. realistically, I just didn't have anything, you know. I hadn't found my footing yet, and then that, you know, you you have to expect that. I think, you know, it does take a long time for someone to really find. I wrote two romantic comedies during that period before I realised it wasn't very funny, and uh, you know, <laughs> so I had to explore that and fail quite a few times before I could find the right road, you know? Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hear you definitely. Um, now, I mean, the, the key here, I mean, is, um, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times is, is finding your voice. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess that's basically what every, you know, screenwriter hopes they can do is, is you know, find, you know, what's inside them and, and what they can communicate best into a screenplay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, um, now I, I do want to kind of veer off real quick and, um, obviously, you know, we are, um, horror news confidential and we are uh, on horrornews.net and, and the totally driven entertainment radio network. Um, so, you know, I, I have to ask about a little bit about horror movies. Um, so, Go you know, along, yeah. uh, you know, this, um, this travel, this journey that you have been, you know, taking on since, you know, Australia. Um, I'm assuming you are a, a horror movie fan. Oh yeah. You know, and that's, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the strange thing, you know, Michael, is it, <laughs> you know, that they're what I love to watch, you know, um, the exorcist is still one of the greatest all time horror films. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, not only is it a great book, but, but that uh, what William Friedkin did with that film it was terrifying. Uh, I remember seeing that oh for the first time, and I uh, was having nightmares. Uh, and I loved it. I loved being scared. Um, I love you know, and I've come to appreciate what it is to to give a good scare and to feel it, you know. Um, and I think, for me, why I didn't go to AFI and just write horror films. Um, was probably, and you know, it was probably something to do with a lot of my theatre training. You know, theatre had been a very big part of my life. Um, story had been a very big part of my life. But, you know, when I was leaving the AFI, um, the dean 
our dean back then, Robert Mandel, basically said to me, you know, uh, you quite obviously love to write. You know, your teachers speak very highly of you, but you don't you don't seem to know who you are as a writer. And uh, he said, picture it this way. You have an AMC Cineplex. You have 16 theatres. Each one of those theatres has the best to offer of every genre. Which one do you go and see? You know, and it seemed very simple to me. You know, I go and see a horror thriller, you know, or, or a psychological thriller. I love psychological thrillers. And he, so he said to me, then why aren't you writing those? You know, um, and, and that was the beginning of really thinking hard about the stories that I was gravitating to, the, the ideas that I had, and, and turning them into something that, you know, that I would love to go and watch myself. You know, and I think that's a big part of finding out what what you want to write and who you are as a writer is what do you love to write, you know. I mean, there's no nothing to say that I can't ever write comedy one day, but the fact of the matter is I, I wouldn't choose to see that if I had my choice. So that's kind of, that was kind of the beginning for me of really starting to look into, you know, what I wanted to write as a as a writer, you know. So um, I, think, I know you, you know, mentioned... that that'll Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I was just going to, um, you, you mentioned The Exorcist, and um, I was just curious, um, you know, as far as, like, writing and writing styles go, um, are there any um, horror screenwriters that, um, you know, you read their scripts and, you know, you kind of studied them, and, and, you know, you're like, man, the, these guys really know what's going on, and um, any... Um, uh, you could even go with, uh, you know, directors too. Uh, anyone that you follow and that you um, uh, inspire you to to do what you know what you do. Sure. Um, you know, uh, for me, uh, I loved. I you know, I was like everyone else. I fell in love with the found footage. Um, the when when I first saw the initial paranormal activity, I was just blown away by it um, and its power to scare. Not. You know, the idea of horror just being the gore element or, you know, the slasher element or, and I know the subgenres, but this thing, the way that it was able to hold tension in each frame, um, uh, and that's probably more about the way it was filmed and directed than the way it was written, but um, I was very inspired by that. Um, you know, Ed Sanchez, certainly, Eduardo Sanchez is someone, you know, the Blair Witch Project and his trajectory, you know, through making Lovely Molly, which I really liked, and Exists, which I really liked. Um, uh, he really makes stories that he he loves, you know, and he does a lot of his own writing um, and has been very true to his own his own voice. You know, I, like, I love his work. Um, you know, Lee Winnell and James Wan, you know, the Saw franchise and now the Insidious franchise, you know. Sure. You know, I've met yeah. Lee a couple of times from where I work um, because we did the Insidious franchise with him, and uh, and and he's just a great guy. But you know, they really when you when you are, when you are not only able to watch their work but to be involved in in the business itself, it really does give you a good look and appreciation for a look at and appreciation for the business side of of what they're doing as well. You know, they know their voices; they're very true to what they love. Um, and so I, I'm very inspired by by those guys, you know, and their connection to the found footage genre and the way they've been able to uh, to come out of that, you know. Um, 
and Lee and I share a birthday as well, so that that helps, you know. But, oh, uh, but, but yeah, no, those guys definitely. Yeah, the, the the found footage stuff for me, I think in some ways, it feels like it might be done in in some ways, but but those guys and the way that they did it and the way they brought it about and the way they were able to create those really tense, terrifying stories inside a very small budget. Um, and just through the power of storytelling and filmmaking was very inspirational. Right. No, I mean, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, they, um, you know, they had me on, on the, the edge of my seat, you know, and, um, I mean, that's what I look for in a, a horror movie, something to, you know, to keep me there and to keep me in suspense and, you know, to scare me. I mean, basically when it comes down to it, you, you want a good scare. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think, you know, I, I will sit up of a nighttime and I will troll all of the streaming services looking for new product and new material and new voices. And I, I, I love this, uh, you know, I haven't got a chance to watch it yet, but, or a lot of it anyway, but, um, this new anthology fever that's coming out, you know, uh, there's a strong, you've probably heard of shutter.com, but you know, I'm a, a oh, yeah. serve, you know, I'm a membership with Shutter.com, and they're doing some great stuff on there. You know, not just old stuff, but new stuff and foreign stuff. You know, I love. I think the Koreans make horror like no one else. You know, um, Train to Busan was was an amazing film, uh, um, and I, I'm I'm using that service to really try and find new voices and these anthologies that are coming out. You know, the VHS kind of stuff and the XX, those kind of things. It really is a platform for new filmmakers in this genre to to find a voice and to find their way onto a platform that you know um, that studios and networks will actually take a look at you know when they're looking for people uh, for the for the new up and coming material and the new up and coming filmmakers you know um, I, I do I, I do try to do that but but I find that there's a lot of stuff being sorry go ahead. No, no. So, uh, yeah, let me just dive into that since you, you started talking about, um, you know, your, your position at Sony Pictures. And I'm sure a lot of people are, are listening and are, are curious about, um, you know, at your level and what you do, um, what, um, you know, if you just kind of continue this conversation um, and just speak a little bit, uh, a little bit about, what um, some of your um, uh, some of your duties are on the position that you hold at Sony? Sure. Um, so, I, as I said, I do I do um, I uh, work for the president of Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisitions. Um, I do assist him on uh, you know he answers directly to the head of uh, Sony Pictures uh, Entertainment, uh, which is Tom Rothman, and uh, so. It's my job to make sure that he's got everything he needs every day, just like a good executive assistant does. But on the other side, too, um, I do take a lot of calls from people who are selling films. Um, I work closely also with the acquisitions department. Um, and as I said, acquisitions is, is a lot of what we do. We go to a lot of the film festivals. Um, we also have uh, have deals with other companies. Um, we work very closely with Blumhouse. We work very closely with Open Road um, and all those people who, you know, we can work with on acquiring material. So part of my job is to read some of those screenplays as well um, that come into us, ones that we're thinking about buying. 
uh, and to make, you know, just to see whether they are worth doing. And look, frankly, sometimes we'll get a screenplay that we know needs work, but if it's coming in and, you know, it has Chris Pine and, you know, um, Chris Pine and Benicio Del Toro attached with Guillermo Del Toro directing, then, you know, we're probably going to trust that they're going to get it right <laughs> at some point. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, so we do, while we do not have a lot of the times the sole creative say on, on, on projects, um, we are part of a very big machine that acquires material and then works collaborative, collaboratively with other people on helping them get those scripts as best as we can. And part of my job is to read those scripts and, and give notes every now and then. Um, you know, I also have uh, have in the past um, sourced through my own network of contacts, financiers, bringing financiers into the studios who might be interested in, in looking to invest in movies. Um, we do get uh, a, a quite a few of those. Some Some work out. Others get a little bit disillusioned by the fact that you know it is a big machine, and there are there are a lot of um, pegs to put in holes. Um, Absolutely. But, but that is another thing that I've done in the past is is try to keep my ear to the ground on you know through people that I know if people are looking to invest in films, what they're looking to do, are they looking to co-produce with their companies, are they looking to co-finance, you know that kind of thing, um, and how they want it because we do our deal structures are very kind of eclectic. So we can, you know, if we go to film festivals and we see something we like, we like, um, you know, um, you know, for instance, you know, this is hypothetical, but you go to a film festival, you see a film with Antonio Banderas in it. Um, are you going to think about acquiring that to release it domestically here? Probably not, you know, um, because you're looking to fill right. theaters, you know, um, but in Latin America, you know, Antonio is a very big star. Um, when I first came on board at Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisitions, um, we were still making films with Dolph Lundgren and, and Jean-Claude Van Damme, not because we were looking to uh, release them in the theatres here in, in America, but because, you know, they have a very big fan base in Europe still. And right. uh, they, can sell, they can sell material there on, on streaming or DVD. Um, well, not DVD so much anymore, but back then. You know, nine, nine yeah, ten yeah. years ago, we, you know, we were only just starting to see DVD take a small dip. But, um, but yeah, that's some of the things that I do. You know, I also help prepare festival schedules. Um, you know, I work closely with uh, with our uh, production guys. Do we? We do have a couple of production executives, um, and they do varying types of things uh, from you know project managing things like uh, the Sniper franchise. Uh, okay. to, 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 you know, overseeing, overseeing projects that we bring in that are still in a certain stage of production. Um, so there, you, because we are such a small group, uh, a lot of people do, a, do a lot of different things. Um, of course. you know, but, uh, you know, our fe the festival stuff that we do, uh, we get, you know, we go to all the top festivals. That's probably, uh, the biggest part of what we do. You know, and a lot of a lot of the material that comes to us comes through the big agencies or the sales agents, you know, um, because we unfortunately can't take unsolicited unsolicited material. Um, so I'm curious. But, do, uh, you, do you? Um, yeah. I'm sorry. So I'm curious. Do you 
watch more movies or do you uh, read more screenplays, um, do you think, or, or equal? You know, I probably, I probably watch more movies, to be honest with you. Um, okay. Uh, the, because of it, because a, as I said, acquisitions and we we acquire material at various stages of production. You know, we're not always acquiring just finished material. Uh, right. we, we might get involved in co-producing um, certain stuff. Um, but but uh, mostly of what I do is I'll watch uh, I'll watch screeners. Um, I'll watch uh, trailers. I'll watch short films that have been submitted by directors who have also submitted um, uh, scripts to our production guys. So I do a lot of those different things, you know, and we, you know, I'm also kind of a gatekeeper in a lot of ways uh, for my boss who, you know, doesn't necessarily want to be, he doesn't necessarily want to be talking to that producer who has just finished a film starring Mike, the situation, Sorrentino, and wants us to distribute it, you know, because frankly, (laughs) what what are we going to do with that? Um, But we, we do get them. We do get those and, and, and I think sometimes that's just people not really uh, studying the market before they make a film, before they dive headlong into making a film, working out where they're going to go with it, who should be in it, what sells, you know. Um, and, you know, the horror genre specifically um, is one of those really, uh, it's one of those genres where if it's a good script and we're pretty confident that the writer-director or writer or director has a, um, a decent amount of, of experience or, uh, you know, has had some kind of festival love or is getting some social media attention, then we're going to take a look at that, you know, uh, because genre is one of those things where you don't need to attach Brad Pitt to sell it. And, uh, right. you know, so if it's done right, yeah, I mean, you know. You had mentioned, um, you know, about the, uh, you know, the dip of, in, uh, in DVD sales and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of um, a lot of movies now are being seen through services like Shutter. Um, so, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the future right now uh, of of how people are viewing movies. Would you not agree? Oh, absolutely. And um, I don't think you know. I had this discussion with someone recently, and you know, who was saying, you know, is theatre dead? Is the cinema dead and all that kind of stuff? And and I don't think it is. I think, you know, technology changes and technology has changed. And you can either roll with that or not. And, um, you know, Sony Pictures Entertainment is a very big company. And uh, we have a lot of people dedicated to looking at all of those platforms and working out how we can move with technology instead of putting walls up and saying we don't want to do that. Um, You know, so one of the great things that one of the great experiences I've been able to have working where I am is watching the DVD market become more of a collector's uh, (laughs) collector's uh, platform and, and watching the evolution of, of streaming, you know, and, and our, you know, watching Netflix and Amazon grow and, and learning to work with those, Um, you know, again, in, in the genre field, if you can make a good horror micro budget film, um, then the chances of you getting distribution are are much greater, uh, I think personally, because you do have those platforms like Shutter now and 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 Amazon and, and Netflix. And I think what it does change though is the budgets. You know, we we don't see those mid range 
budgets much anymore. You know, we are looking yeah. we are looking to get smaller fare. Um, you know, I mean, we'll still work with you know the Blumhouse of it all. You know, the uh, the Insidious franchise. I mean, they're not micro budgets, but but you know, our Sony Pictures Entertainment looks to also how they can spend the marketing dollars. You know, which is a lot of money, and they've got to be able to market those films in an effective manner. Uh, and that's where those the, the elements like Lee Wanell and James Wan and and you know Guillermo del Toro and uh, and Ed Sanchez to a certain degree, you know even the the you know the Eli Roth and and those guys, and uh, you, you can use what they have and what they've done as a marketing tool to a certain degree to sell material. Um, and so we you know we are a very big branding and marketing company, and that's what we look to, and that's very important. I think also when you're looking at you don't want to be thinking about how am I going to brand and market this when you're first writing your story, you know, uh, as a screenwriter. You, that, that's, that's not uh, really something you should be concerned with. But at the same time, you know, you, you really should be, before you're making the film, thinking about, you know, where is this going to land? How do I get this made? You know, and thinking a little bit ahead about the distribution side of it. Um, and, sure. and really festivals, when you're looking at, Independence film these days, the festival circuit is still one of the best ways to get in. You know. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree there. Um, and I know you can't really talk about like you know the present or the future, but if we could just um, you know talk about the past, what? Uh, and I know you mentioned you know uh, a couple different um, franchises, but um, what are some of the um, some of the movies that you were um, involved in? Uh, you know, bringing on board Sony. Um. Well, it's it's not. I'm not an acquisitions executive, so it's not really my job to bring stuff on board. Um, I have worked on on uh, the Insidious franchise. Um, okay. We don't just do horror either. I mean, I worked on uh, Faster with Dwayne Johnson. Did some story analysis and development for that. Um, okay. We also yeah, um, and we also uh, we also worked. I did a little bit of work on Don't Breathe. Uh, which was out recently and did a little um, development on that. But basically it's not, sure. it's not part of my job to bring them in. You know, that's done by our acquisitions executives. Um, right. So I pretty much just focus on story. Um, you know, we okay. also have a very healthy Christian faith section as well. Um, we, are, we are also the uh, division that oversees Affirm Films which brought out War Room and Risen recently, um, two very successful okay. films in the box office. So um, as far as bringing stuff in, um, I have, as I said, I've brought financiers in, but, uh, it, uh, and they, and they uh, bring their own, they bring more money than they do the projects. Um, okay. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, as a story, as a story analyst, uh, Soul Surfer is one I did many, many years ago, which, you know, I, Personally, I was sure it wasn't going to work, but it, it absolutely did, and it did because of the team that we had to get behind it and make sure that it did, you know, and, and who marketed it and fashioned it a certain way. So okay. it's always uh, – that's what I find most interesting is being able to see something come into us, you know, um, try not to judge too much and just really dig in um, into the story of it and the analysis of it. Yeah, no, I find it fascinating. That that really sounds pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I wish I had your job. <laughs> uh, yeah, it can um, get a little crazy at times, but uh, it is very rewarding. 
definitely. Um, so let's kind of um, focus a little bit more on um, the screenwriting end right now, and let, let's talk about uh, another project that you're um, that you're diving into, and that's the um, the new screenwriter website. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things I. I really enjoyed my experience at the American Film Institute. And one of the reasons that I enjoyed that so much was there was, you know, in the second year, we had this fantastic class uh, where, you know, you're in a room with an Academy Award nominee, you know, uh, Anna Thomas, who was my mentor, um, and she wrote Frida. And, uh, and the experience that I got in that room uh, with the eight other writers that I was working with. It was a very kind of small environment where everyone was collaborative with regards to when you wrote pages of your of your feature, you know, everyone went away that week and they read everyone's pages and they came back and they were ready to discuss what was wrong, what was right, how it could be fixed. And, and um, when Anna came into that room every week, she, it was clear to me that she had read every word of what I've written. You know, there was no time wasted, and she had things to say, and and she had, she had uh, advice to give, and she had craft to teach. You know, as and and she even questioned my story. You know, is this really what you should be writing? How are you going to do this? And she inspired you to to come up with, you know, your your seven big beats, your outline, and we went through all of that process, and. It was a very, very big turning point in me becoming a writer. You know, I realized that this is not just something where you pump out a first draft and then send it out to people. You know, get your 120 pages done and, hey, I'm done, finished, all over. Right. It really wasn't that at all. It was an understanding that, okay, here's your outline. Great. Look, you've got a first draft. Good. Now you can start really working on it. <laughs> and uh, okay. we lost a few people after they found that out. Um, but, but that was really inspiring to me. And so what really prompted the new screenwriter.com for me was I, I want to try and recreate that experience. And I know that it's not, it's not as visceral and it's not as tactile as being in a room, but at the same time, what I find with a lot of the sites these days that do script coverage and a lot of that is they're very impersonal. And I know from experience that, and I'm not going to name them, but there's a couple of them that use agency interns instead of actually giving it to actual writers who have experience in developing story. And then all they do is they do a little bit of coverage, give their ideas, someone else rewrites it so it sounds good, and then thanks for your $100. And I just, I don't want to do that. I wanted to create something where I can um, work with people almost one-on-one -on -one you know, um, where they can go to a site and work with people, you know, and you might already have an outline. You might already have that, you know, you're, right. you, you satisfied with your story and I can help you with that. But that means you can go straight into script. So you don't want to have to redo the entire outline process and pay for that. You know, um, so I've tried to create a website that's menu based where you can go to a specific part of the outline process or the script process and you can start there. Or, if you haven't written one, like I hadn't when I first applied for AFI, you can start at the beginning and work with me, you know, and I'm not going to do the work for you. 
<laughs> but I'm going to be there through. I'm going to be there through each and every process. I'm going to be on the end of the email to ask questions um, and to guide you as best as I can, as best as I was, in in how to cre- take that coffee stained napkin and turn it into a feature length screenplay or a TV pilot, whichever one you want to do. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do. I, you know, now if a thousand people suddenly infiltrate my website, then I'm in big trouble. But I don't <laughs> see that happening. I don't see that happening too soon. Um, but you know, it just gives me uh, something where I can actually connect with a few people who want to go through that process, who are inter- who who may not have the opportunity to go to grad school, you know, right. but um, who really do want to write that screenplay and know that they can come to someone who has experience who, you know, I'm just started work on my 14th screenplay. Um, uh, you know, I have one that's close to, you know, I have a big director attached to one and, and it looks like it's about to go. So, um, uh, I am an almost produced feature writer, but where I have a lot of my experience is, is in the studio system. No, I can't. (laughs) Okay. But, uh, which is going to sound really convenient, but uh, but uh, no, I promise I will. I promise I will at a later date. But uh, no, you know, I've just finished. Uh, I've just finished another uh, another horror feature. Um, it's called The Gruesome, and uh, it's being seriously looked at by Ed Sanchez, actually, who I've made connections with okay. and have known for a little while. And so him and I are talking a little bit about that, and maybe him uh, attaching as the director which he's expressed oh, wow. interest in. So, so you know, this is 14 screenplays later. You know, I, I, want, I once heard John August, you know, who's a very well-known screenwriter, say, you know, I have 50 screenplays on my shelf that are never going to get made. You know, because he just, when he was younger and he was writing, he was writing one after another and one after another and continued to write and write. And that's what I like yeah. to do. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's uh, the new screenwriter is a way for me to, almost teach at grad school without being in the grad school environment, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a wonderful opportunity for, um, for writers and in particular, you know, there's a lot of uh, horror movie enthusiasts and, and, you know, horror movie, um, you know, uh, fans that want to write screenplays uh, that, you know, come to horrornews.net all the time uh, and, you know, hopefully, you know, if they're listening right now or if, if they're playing this in the future, um, you know, this would be uh, an alternative for them. So it's definitely um, it definitely has value. It definitely is something that should be out there. So I, I, I see all kind of, um, you know, positives here. Yeah. You know, I did a bit of research before I kind of got it up and going and designed what I wanted it to be. Um, and there didn't seem to be a lot out there uh, offering this. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's at least when they come to my website, they know that not only have I got that experience as a, as a screenwriter and, you know, having worked on, you know, Hawaii Five-0 as a, screen, as a, as a, a screenwriter as well, the TV show. Um, uh, not the Jack Lord one, by the way. I'm, I'm not that old. Uh, but uh, um, I didn't think but they that. know that... They know when they come there that they've got someone who has been through the grad school experience, who work, has worked as a development 
um, person in a major studio and is also a really big fan of horror movies um, and writes horror movies himself. So I think, you know, for horror fans especially, more than likely this would be a great site to come to. Um, but, you know, um, it's it, it'll be a slow burn and, and um, you know, I'm looking forward to, uh, the, you know, I'm looking forward to, to taking people through it. It's only just launched, so it's not old yet, but, um, but uh, you know, hopefully we can get we can get a few students who are interested in doing that, and I look forward to to uh, to listening to and and to reading people's ideas, you know. And and for anyone who's worried, um, I'm not out to troll for ideas. Um, it is not that kind of website. Uh, all of your material will remain yours uh, when it gets to the end of that uh, that time when we've polished that feature. It will be entirely yours. It will not be mine. Um, then again, I do have contacts in the industry. If we get it to a certain place um, and it's it's in a certain condition and I think it might be right for somewhere, I, I have that ability too um, to, to access very high-level people. But I'm not promising that. Um, all I'm right. promising to do right now is to take your idea and get it to a place where I know I've seen the, a similar standard. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like a... Uh you know, a situation where you can't lose. I mean, you can only benefit from your experience. Um, and, uh, I mean, hey, you, you sold me on it, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but, no, good, good stuff. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if there's anything uh, in this conversation that we haven't touched on already, but, um, you know, I'll throw it to you. If there's anything else that you want to mention or bring up that we haven't talked about already, please feel free. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, first of all, thanks for having me, Michael. It was a lot of fun. Um, uh, I, I love talking about writing. I'm very passionate about it. You know, I will say this. I did go and see Wish Upon, uh, which okay. was just released recently. Um, and it actually was a pretty good film. Pretty good film. Okay. Um, a lot of the, I, I always wait for the new horror to come out, and then I'll, I'll sneak off on the weekends, um, you know, and, uh, and watch it, uh, whether it's getting good reviews or not. You know, um, I like to see what's out there. And all I will say to people is be as well-rounded as you can when you're when you're looking to write something. Make sure you're reading stuff. There's a lot of great websites that you can go to or places like hollywoodbooksandposters.com where you can buy scripts. And, you know, that's the other advantage of where I work because I get to read a lot of scripts. And that has informed my writing over the years, you know. The more you read, the better you write, you know, and uh, and I've been lucky to be able to do that. But that's what I will say, too, is, you know, if you want to do this, you've got to be watching all the films, old and new, um, and and you definitely, you know, keep up with the new stuff and the new filmmakers and who's out there because, uh, because they're the people that are going to be reading new scripts once their stuff takes off, you know. Okay. I, you know, absolutely. Um you know, I agree 100%. And, you know, I, this has been – it went by pretty quick, but, I mean, it, it really has <laughs> been a fascinating a fascinating hour of, of learning, like, the uh, insides of Sony Pictures and what you do and, and also the whole screenwriting process. Um, now, if, um, not, not, not to, um, you know, not, not to give too much away or anything, mm-hmm. but um, if you would – just throw out one more free general piece of advice 
to up-and-coming screenwriters, um, yeah. what would it be? Well, you know, I I have a job at a studio, um, and but with but that doesn't necessarily help my writing. What helps my writing is I get up at three thirty every day um, during the weekdays, uh, and I write. I go to bed early, and I'm disciplined. I'm sitting at my desk at a certain time every day, and I'm writing. Um, you know, the gift is nothing without the work. If you have a little bit of talent, that's great. But if you don't put the hard work into working that muscle every day and sitting down, whether you want to or not, um, whether you think you, you, you know, you're too busy to or not, you have to find time to do it. Um, and that's the only way that I've been able to get to where I am as a writer. And, you know, uh, I'm still waiting to sell a major one at some point. But I, I love it. I really do love it. And if you love it, you have to put the work into it. Uh, and if you do put the work into it, you will, you will succeed uh, in some version of what you want. And I will also say, rest in peace, George Romero. Yeah, without a doubt, one of the uh, true legends in, uh, you know, a horror cinema, um, you know, without a doubt. Thank, thanks for bringing that up, too. Um, uh, do you have a favorite George Romero movie? Uh, I, you have to, I think, um, I think Night of the Living Dead. I mean, how, I don't, how do you go past that? I really don't sure. know. I, for, its, for its time, you know, and, and I, I watched it again recently. Um, for its time, it was so well done and so tense and, and, and frightening. And, you know, that opening cemetery scene is just, I, I, I loved that movie. You know, I think it's, it still holds up today. I mean, if it's not in, if you're a horror fan and it's not somewhere in your your top ten list, I mean, something's wrong. I mean, it's, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a you may not You may not be a horror fan. <laughs> right, exactly. You might not be a horror fan if it's not in your top ten list. <laughs> but, True. Um, uh, uh, you know, again, you know, fantastic talking to you, um, Steve. Um, and you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Um, and uh, you know, good luck with um, the the website, um, thenewscreenwriter.com. Uh, and I'll definitely be posting more information on horrornews.net about it. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll see this thing take off. Great, thanks, Michael. It's been great talking to you. Uh, thanks so much, man. All right, bye bye. All right, that was. Uh, Steve Douglas Craig, and uh, we were talking about his uh, his job at Sony Pictures and acquisitions, and then his new website, thenewscreenwriter.com. Right now, what I'd like to do is uh, bring it to our commercial break, and then when we come back, uh, we got uh, our guest over from Cryptic Pictures, so that should be fun times. All right, we'll be back in a few. Women Entertainment Radio Network is the perfect way to spread the word of your business around the world. That's right. You can advertise at our network and be played on all of our shows at rates that are so cheap. It's a no-brainer. For more information, contact Bay Ragney at bayragney at gmail.com. To keep your business driven, stay driven with Totally Driven Entertainment. Are you a fan of Sherlock Holmes? Letters from Holmes offers unique, one-of-a-kind letters from the world-famous detective himself. 
Handwritten on 8.5 inch by 11 inch aged parchment paper and using smudge free ink to produce original high quality letters that fans will treasure for years to come. Each letter is handcrafted and written from the perspective of Sherlock Holmes mimicking Holmes's native tongue and embracing many of the famous detectives' quirks, quips, insults and peculiarities. Order a love letter, birthday greeting, personal correspondence or more only at www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash letters from homes. For $5 today, you can buy a wealth of things. Gas for your car, rent a movie for the family, a few slices of pizza. $5 still takes you a long ways. But did you know that $5 can buy your child a bag of heroin in the streets? That's right. For only $5, your son or daughter can buy some of the cheapest and purest dope in the country. Be aware of the lies. Be aware of the stealing. Be aware that's all it takes to kill your child. $5. This message was brought to you by Casey's Cause, a group of parents located in southern Chester County out to save your child's life. Come join us today at www.caseyscause.com. And remember, $5 is all it takes. Casey's Cause www.caseyscalls.com Looking for that perfect gift for your girlfriend? Then look no further than Teddy Scares. Teddy Scares are available in a variety of styles, sizes, and prices for all your shopping needs. Teddy Scares are a mix of cute and creepy to make a great gift for almost any age. Board up your windows, lock your doors, and log on to teddyscares.com. And be sure to become our friends at facebook.com slash teddyscares. Calling all comic book fans. Do you collect comics? Did you ever collect comics? Do you think your children might like reading comic books? Do you even know they still print real, paper, non-digital comic books? Well, then visit the Pirates of Ontario Street Comics in Philadelphia. We have a massive collection of comic books, action figures, trading cards, and much more. We have one of the largest stocks of back-issue comics in the area. We bag and board every new comic book at no extra charge. Our store is voted the best comic book shop in the 2013 PHL 17 Hot List Contest. Part of the movie Unbreakable is filmed in our store. We are open seven days a week. Ontario Street Comics is located at 2235 East Ontario Street in the Port Richmond section of Philly. Our phone number is 215-288-7338. Type in the words Ontario Comics Philadelphia to check out our Wacky Stores page on Facebook. Hey, this is Michael Joy back with you, and uh, what a, a fantastic talk we had with uh, Steve Douglas Craig. Right now, I just want to uh, mention real quick, um, Red Christmas is coming out by Artsploitation Films. Uh, this is a uh, fantastic new movie starring Dee Wallace. She's also executive producer. Um, Dee Wallace, if you're not familiar with her career, I mean everything from Cujo to E.T., The Extraterrestrial, uh, one of my favorite movies, The Howling. Um, so, uh, you know, this is um, your classic uh, 80s-style Christmas horror-type movie uh, to throw back to Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Christmas Evil. Uh, it's got that kind of vibe, that kind of feel. Um, and uh, just mentioning, uh, again, uh, Artsploitation Films has really, um, you know, outdone themselves. They're releasing it... Uh, uh, in the United States, uh, first theatrically, um, it hits in Los Angeles on August 25th. Uh, also, uh, at September 1st, uh, Chattanooga, Dallas, 
Kansas City, Milwaukee, and uh, Monterey, California. Uh, then on the September 8th, uh, it hits uh, Houston, Texas, and San Francisco. September 15th, Columbus, Ohio. September 16th, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, September 26th, uh, Winchester, Virginia. And September 27th, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, and they're constantly adding dates for the theatrical. Uh, and then it's uh, being released on VOD, DVD, and Blu-ray come October 17th. So once again, that's Red Christmas. Uh, please look for it uh, as it's uh, you know going to be coming to uh, a city near you, or if not, you know, wait for that Blu-ray to come around the corner because it's, it's really going to be one that's, uh, you know, worth watching. Uh, again, Red Christmas. All right, guys. A scientist named Frankenstein made a monster by sewing together parts of old dead bodies. You have to read that stuff. Wait a minute. Frankenstein gave the monster eternal life by shooting it full of electricity. Some people claim it is not dead even now. Uh-huh. Just dormant. <laughs> Now, who'd be silly enough to believe that? (laughs) (laughs) Who would be silly enough to believe that? (laughs) (laughs) Me. All right, this is Michael Joy, and you are listening to Horror News Confidential. I hope you're enjoying the program so far. And, uh, you know, I think... uh, we have um, uh, Mark and, uh, and uh, Chris on the phone. Hi, I think so. Doing? Can you hear me? I can hear you pretty good. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine, Mike. All right. Then we're in business. Mark. Is Mark on the line? Um, I thought he was, but maybe we lost him. But He'll call back. You there? Take a lot of okay. challenge. <laughs> no problem. So how you doing, man? How you been? It, it, it's been a while. I think um, last time I, I talked, or, and I know last time I seen you was a couple of years ago at Bizarre AC in Atlantic City. At, yeah, in Atlantic City. That was a pretty good show. And uh, yeah, we've been doing doing pretty good. I mean, we've just been promoting the our, our, our movie for the past couple of years. And we've been showing it here and there. And we're finally going to release it. Yeah, no, fantastic. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I, I guess before we really dive into that, um, uh, did you um, did you hear any of the um, the previous interview I did with? Um, I, I know you know him, um, Steve Douglas Craig. I I know Steve well. We <laughs> excuse me, I just caught the tail end of it when I dialed in, and I heard you asking him about George Romero, and it was a a very big uh, loss to all of us that, that George passed away. But of course, he left a yeah. wonderful legacy behind. Oh, he certainly did. I mean, you know, we're just yeah. talking about how, you know, I mean, Night of the Living Dead. I mean, you know, if, if that movie it doesn't crack your your top ten list if you're a horror fan, I mean, you know, something's terribly. But then wrong. you have no you have no business calling yourself a horror fan if that's not on your list. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, so yeah, oh, no, no. I mean, I think it's, Steve. Steve said, "How do you top Night of the Living Dead?" And I said, "Well, obviously, Dawn of the Dead is the answer." Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean this this guy. Um, I, I mean, think about like where you know the um, the whole zombie subgenre is right now. Um, yeah. You know, with The Walking Dead and and just like I, I mean, there's countless numbers of movies that have been made about zombies, and I mean, oh, yeah. really, it 
it all comes down to, you know, being from one guy. And, and that was, uh, you know, George Romero and, and his, um, you know, film Night of the Living Dead. I mean, that literally was responsible for, you know, zombies as we kind of become to see them and, and know them and, and define them. Yeah, really. I think the only only real change to that, I mean, he, he created that subgenre. Um, because, like, you know, as everyone knows, the zombies up, up to that point were even up to Sugar Hill, and which was after Night of the Living Dead. But that was, you know, the whole Caribbean slaves of the guy in the castle, you know. And right. uh, the, the whole, that whole uh, uh, notion of the zombies actually coming back and seeking human flesh to eat, that was, you know, that was kind of their doing. And that's gone in so many directions and been ripped off in so many ways and been, uh, there's been so many tributes to it as well. I mean, The Walking Dead, you know, originally the comic book was sort of a knockoff, of, you know, or, or a, an homage to Romero's uh, series. And uh, now look what it's become. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, the idea of a, a, a Living Dead TV series was, was unfathomable. And now right. it's like the number one show on TV. Yeah, I, I mean, like, um, seriously, I mean, when, when I was a kid, when you were a kid, um, you know, I was watching, I was watching Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, you know, I was watching, yeah, me too. you know, I was watching Fantasy Island, I was watching The Love Boat, <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, fast forward, and it's like, um, the horror movies have leaped from, you know, theatrical right onto your um, weekly TV screen, which is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I mean, it, it really has come a long way. Um, I mean, you wouldn't have dared to have a, a weekly horror um, television show, you know, back, I don't know, 20, 30, 30 years ago. But now yeah, it's, I mean, even, it's even back then, I think the, the only, yeah, the only things we had at the time, uh, at, at the time that we grew up, I mean, I remember they had occasionally a show like Dark Room that was sort of an anthology thing. Um, and then the 80s, they re- sort of rebooted the Twilight Zone. But even that wasn't right. out and out horror. It was just sort of, you know, sh- surreal, sometimes dark fantasy. Uh, but horror TV was just, you know, it was un- uh, unconscionable. And uh, the idea of, I mean, it's old now, 20 years ago. 20 years have gone by. But, the, you know, ho- like a- action figures of Leatherface and zombies from Dawn of the Dead, I had to make my own. You know, <laughs> it didn't exist. You couldn't go to the store and buy action figures of Jason Voorhees, you know, but now there's all the places. I I had my Star Wars action action figures, and basically, you know, I had to pretend that they were chopping each other's head off, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to torture G.I. Joe because I didn't have anybody else to do it for me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Hey, boys, am I on? Yeah, okay. I thought thought that was you. We lost you for a little bit. Yeah, forgive me. I was trying to uh, phone in via Skype, and then Chris told me, forget Skype. Just call in on your phone. I hope you can yeah, hear me. I, I can I hear you guys loud and clear. Yeah, I, I can, can hear, hear you now. Good. Well, I'm on board. Sorry. Uh, forgive my delay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, oh. I'm Christian Stavrakis, award-winning director and 
You're also hearing award-winning director Mark Ritchie, and of course we're on with award-winning podcaster Michael Joy. <laughs> Mike, 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 how is life, man? How you doing? I haven't we haven't chatted with you in a while. Yeah, you know, I was just mentioning the last time I seen you guys was when we were over at Bizarre AC in Atlantic City, which was a fun time. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that's if you think about it, I don't know what was that three, four, five years ago. Uh, four, I think it was 2013 when we were uh, on our festival run with Mortal Remains. So it had been the fall of 2013, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, yeah about so four years ago. Hey, but but we always think of you, my friend, which is uh, why we uh, felt the need to connect you, uh, of all people, Mr. Har News himself, with uh, Stephen Douglas Craig, who you just got done interviewing. I was listening to a portion of that interview. Um. And it was. I'm so yeah, glad Steve that we were able to connect guy. you guys. So yeah, you know, it was very I, I inspirational. I definitely want to thank you guys for that. Um, you know, from um, you know throwing the connection my way, and and I was able to have him on, and he talked about, um, you know, being involved in at Sony Pictures and what he does there, and then his new project, the new screenwriter.com, uh, is a fascinating, fascinating individual. Well, I have to tell you, Steve Douglas Craig, not only is he an incredible screenwriter with something like 14 or 15 screenplays under his belt already, but he is actually the reason we made Mortal Remains to begin with. Wow. Okay. So do tell. What's the story behind that? Well, I had written it myself back in 2003, 2004, I, you know, just written it as a documentary from beginning, and I sort of created this entire story of Carl Atticus and his life and, and, and his deeds, and the whole thing was, was written as a, a sort of an in search of episode. And uh, years later, I think, Mark, what, what was the relation there, Mark? It's you, Steve's Steve, wife. Steve's wife, Jen, used to work for my theatrical production company. She was an educator uh, on my staff. And Jen and I go way back to – we have our roots in, in uh, the Washington, D.C. theater scene. Uh, so I knew Jen before I knew Steve. And then when they uh, got married, I subsequently, of course, became friends with Steve. Um, and they lived right – uh, in my same neighborhood, and then eventually moved out to L.A. so that Steve could pursue his uh, his screenwriting career. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. hey, well so there, the, there you have some background yeah, it was there. What, 2009, I think, that Mark was out in L.A. because Mark loves to go to L.A. You know, at least once a year. And he was meeting up with Steve and Jen, and, and Steve was working at Sony, and Mark was pitching him some stuff, and he said, Steve said, what have you got? And Mark said, well, I've got this idea and that idea. And Steve said, no, 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 none of that's going to fly right now. And Mark was kind of reaching and said, well, my friend Chris wrote this thing. And, he, and Mark, he says, tell it was the worst pitch ever. What, what's, what's the <laughs> refreshing? Uh, I mean, it was. It was the worst Hollywood pitch ever. First of all, I hadn't read Chris's script, Mortal Remains, in probably three years. I was puzzle piecing, you know, scenes together, trying to recall the ebb and flow of the uh, and the structure of the of the screenplay itself. I get to Act Three and then forget a, a pinnacle scene in in Act One that I forgot to mention, and then I'd have to go back and reiterate what happened in Act One and start all over. I mean, it was just absolutely abysmal. But he was glued to my every word. He was fascinated by this character. 
Carl Atticus that Chris had developed, and he wanted to know more. But Steve's initial reaction was, hey, is it possible, you know, that you could turn this maybe into a found footage film? Because at the time, this was 08, Paranormal had just come out, and Steve, as he mentioned in his interview with you, was hot and heavy about found footage. It's just it's the genre that he really fell in love with. Um, And that's kind of how it evolved. I mean, again, Mortal Remains originally, the the way Chris originally wrote it, it was a documentary. It wasn't wasn't a found footage film. And so, yeah, we had to sort of graft, you know, based on Steve's notes, which was sort of heady stuff, but he sent us these notes having read our screenplay, and it was on Sony letterhead, and it was like, wow, this is, we're we're official now. Uh, He said, this is a great story. You've constructed a great uh, world and mythology here, but what the audience needs is something to connect to. And so that's where the, the B story comes in. It's a secondary component involving these characters to whom the audience can relate who go in search of this guy and his lost movie. Okay. All right, yeah, I mean, I, you know, and it's funny because I mean, you, you had mentioned a few minutes ago about like, you know, uh, quote unquote, uh, it being like, you know, um, in search of, you know, and like, you know, mm-hmm. right away, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, pictured like, you know, uh, Leonard Nimoy and, and the in search of, but, and was that what the initial um, thought was behind it? Like to have it something like, you know, that TV show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, when I was writing it, I kept hearing that, that Paul Reinder, Michael Lewis sort of creepy Moog synthesizer music in my head. You know? <laughs> and uh, right. it, that, that was exactly the tone that I was going for because we all grew up with that. That was kind of the scariest thing on TV in lieu of an actual horror program was Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, it certainly, certainly was. Thing. Yeah, talking about Bigfoot or Jim Jones or whatever it was he was in search of that week. Um, I think in the in the 80s equivalent would have been uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not with Jack Palance, and I wish we could find that somewhere on DVD because that was a great show too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I loved all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that was just the – that was the conceit that I used was, you know, we're going to tell this as if it was – you know, as if it had really happened, and here are the facts as we're digging them up and – and I wanted to have a really sort of rich narrator voice come in and explain what was going on from time to time. And we were lucky that I got the, I got a couple of local uh, people who had been in the, the Romero uh, circle. Uh, Michael Gornick, who was George's cinematographer for many years, he ended up doing the narration for the documentary sequences. And uh, Chuck Craig, who was the newscaster in Night of the Living Dead, uh, I got him to do the voiceover for the news segment of Carl's body being found and it was wonderful having him do that because when I was writing that dialogue it was his voice I was hearing in my head as well. Right, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. So it was great well, to mean, have that connection. So basically you guys have taken um, you know, your experience um, you know, making this movie uh, and you've put it into uh, a 10-part series, um, a 10-part podcast uh, Crypticast, um, and I know that's what you guys really want to talk about, and I, I definitely want to dive into that. And I've listened to the first six episodes, I believe, uh, and they are absolutely fascinating. Um, what made you think of um, of doing something like this? Uh, quite honestly, we were being bombarded by when when we wrapped Mortal and ended up taking it on a festival tour. 
we ended up uh, winning four uh, separate awards, and each in a different category. We had a directing award that we won down in Georgia, in Atlanta. We picked up a uh, an award, an audience favorite award, and an editing award in Philadelphia, and in Virginia we picked up a, a screenwriting award. And we were after that occurred, we started getting a lot of emails from from indie filmmakers saying, how did you guys pull this off? How did you, A, get funding, and how did you end up making a film? And, and in your first festival run, you picked up four awards, not in just one category, but in four separate categories. And at the time, Chris and I, I would respond via email to these independent filmmakers or via, the you know, we'd talk on the phone, and I'd, I'd kind of – give them, you know, the story behind our journey as filmmakers behind the making of Mortal Remains. And at the same time, Chris and I were kind of throwing ideas back and forth about what our next project would be, and we couldn't really find our voice, what we wanted to say. And eventually I, I told Chris, I said, you know what, the story that we need to tell, the, what we have to say to the independent film market is the story of our journey. That's what people are interested in. And I would go out with like my old uh, film school mentors and they'd, they'd be fascinated by the behind the scenes of our story in the creation of the film, how we went from concept to distribution and the ebbs and flows and the, the you know, the, the mountains that we had to climb in order to achieve even the smallest feats. And I, I finally said to Chris, I said, you know what? I think there's something here. I said, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to become a podcaster per se, so I don't want to do like a, a weekly show where we interview and do commentary, but it would be so much easier if I didn't have to keep calling these independent filmmakers back or or writing these lengthy emails. If I could just put it all into a podcast, into a recorded session, we could then distribute that and, and for free, just give it to filmmakers anywhere, and they'd be able to listen and hear the entire story. And then as this developed, Chris and I started really kind of thinking about the struggles in relation to how Hollywood has changed primarily, because as we were making the film and as we were going through the distribution process and even the festival run process, Hollywood was changing every, every hour. It seemed there was something new on the horizon. Streaming was introduced and so forth, you know, Chris, you want to take a look? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, don't forget where the initial inspiration came from. But uh, Kevin Smith uh, was in town, and he was he was doing. I think they had screened one of his horror movies. Are you in a restaurant? What's going on? <laughs> I think I think there was maybe Mike's kids. Oh, Mike! All right, I thought it was you. I thought yeah. You were in um, yeah, I got, I got my kids in the background here, but <laughs> it's a family show, Christian. Keep it clean, man. Keep it clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were screening a Kevin Smith uh, movie. I forget what it was. It was like a new, a new movie, and it was at the Oaks Theater, which is a theater right within walking distance of my house that we actually filmed part of Mortal uh, Remains in, or outside that theater. Actually, we did film inside too. Um. And Kevin was doing a smod cast from there. And Kevin Smith has a soft spot for Pittsburgh because he filmed Dogma here. And I'd worked on Dogma for a couple of days and I, you know, reintroduced myself. But there was, you know, we stood in line. Kevin's smod casts are great because he'll just talk for hours. Literally, it's, you know, like, you know, three hour podcast. And um, 
I I told him about the movie and I I said what's uh, what's the best approach for somebody who's you know doesn't really have any kind of connections to speak of and he said I tell you man pod, this podcasting is it and he was he was just he he said it's it doesn't really cost much uh, and you can reach a huge audience and you, you can talk about whatever you want and as long as you want and that was uh, you know I. I told Mark, go listen to this podcast that I was talking to Kevin Smith, and you could probably still hear it somewhere online. And uh, Mark said, wow, podcasting, I never thought of that. And that's, that's kind of where this came from because, and again, I could go through my email and find probably 15 or 20 emails that Mark wrote back to people asking questions in great detail. He would, he would just very generously answer these things. And, and uh, I, you know, I think somebody finally said, you guys need to collect this information someplace that people can sort of access it. Uh, and then the podcast thing just happened to fit right in. It's, I must say it's an exciting time for independent filmmakers. And Chris and I are only now realizing that we're sort of still behind the eight ball because when we first started working on mortal remains, I, I was in Hollywood pitching the story, say to Steve, for example, and that's the way you used to break into Hollywood. You pitch a story to right. an executive. He'd say, hey, kid, I really like that. Let's go ahead and start developing this. And here's a few bucks. Go ahead and let's see what you can you know, put in the can. It's just not like that anymore. And so Chris and I came into this thinking that's how it was done and learned over the course of a good you know, eight years how the industry has changed. And everybody that we spoke to and became close friends with through the process who work in the industry – were you know were telling us I can tell you what it's like right now at this minute, but by tomorrow it's going to be completely different. And and we've seen that with you know what I mean. Uh, a few maybe two maybe three years ago I think Amazon put about six billion dollars into into uh, production and into creating new material for their streaming service. And just now we're starting to see all the results of that investment. We're seeing Stranger Things. We're seeing the Westworld series. We're seeing a lot of, of uh, talented young writers and filmmakers being able to break in the industry in this new fashion. So even as we were uh, working on, on trying to figure out how we're going to do this podcast, things were changing all around us. Uh, the whole industry has just completely changed. And so we felt the need to at least share our journey with filmmakers and say, look, don't make the mistakes we made. Um, for example, we had, a, we had an agent out in L.A. who shall go unnamed. I should say an agency, a distribution agency, an aggregator, and, and for a year got nothing, nothing sparked, nothing sparked. And Chris and I finally said, well, to hell with this. We're going to create our own, uh, God bless it, uh, uh, distribution company. We're going to create cryptic pictures distribution. We're going to distribute, our, our, distribute our own films. And, and anybody else who wants to distribute through us, great. We're going to help them out. And that's how we're releasing Mortal Remains, which will be released on DVD and in on Netflix and iTunes uh, uh, in the coming months here, just prior to Halloween. Um, and most filmmakers don't think though that we weren't thinking that way. We were thinking you have to do this the old school way. You get an agent, you get a manager, you, you know. And it's just the game has changed. It's just completely changed. Yeah, I mean, like, I totally agree. You know, you see these things popping up all the time. Um, you know, I, 
talked with Steve a little bit earlier, and we were talking about Shutter um, being, you know, one of the um, places that he goes to see exactly what's out there. Because I mean, you know, you you have these um, streaming services, you have, you know, places like you mentioned Netflix, that you know you have original content out there that. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to see at the theater and you're not going to be able to see it um, because it's not being put out on any kind of DVD or Blu-ray. Um, there's so much content that's just being made uh, online right now. And a lot of these places that are looking for, like, original content, um, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. It's a prime time right now to be a filmmaker because there there are these places that need content and um, they have more spaces than they have filmmakers. Yeah. That's what's encouraging about it too, is that, uh, you know, with like Netflix, I mean, the, the Duffer brothers, they put stranger things together. I, I was watching the show and thinking, wow, who are these guys? You know, they must, they must have a connection somewhere. And I, God bless them. They, they put that show together and it was very enjoyable. Uh, and it's, that seems to be the new angle. That's kind of a, a blessing for little indie filmmakers like us. But if you put something together that maybe catches someone's eye at the right time in the right place, you can get some work out of it. And Mark was talking right. about Colin Trevorrow who did uh, Jurassic world. And now he's doing, I think the next, was it, you doing episode nine? Is he doing of star Wars? Um, I, I don't recall. I can't remember. I have to look that one up just to make sure. I he's, think, uh, I, he's, I, I want to say he's directing one of the episodes of, New, yeah, I don't uh, think he's people. doing the next Jurassic, so. No, okay. But anyway, he, but maybe. You know, I think one feature prior to Jurassic World and then like a student film before that, and just somebody saw his work and liked it and said, let's get this guy, and boom, he's doing big stuff. Um, the, the guy, uh, there's a, a fellow from uh, New Zealand who's, I can't think of his name right now, forgive me, uh, but he did a great movie called What We Do in the Shadows, which is a, a you know, sort of mockumentary about vampires. That's a wonderful movie if you haven't seen it. And uh, now uh-huh. he's, he's directing, he directed the new Thor movie, you know, and it's just, it's brilliant that these, these you know, young guys are now getting the opportunity to make these big movies sort of based on what they've done uh, on the small scale. And, uh, you know, hopefully that something like that could happen to us. I mean, I, I'm not keeping my fingers crossed. You know, somebody's going to jump out of the woodwork, but you never know. But for for, for for independent filmmakers that are listening to this conversation, because I just pulled up uh, to, to – I stand corrected, and you are correct, Chris. He is doing Episode nine of ah. Star Wars. He is also doing the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom coming out in 2018. But, uh, yeah, I mean, his IMDb list is minuscule. This guy went from doing a, a short and, a, and, and uh, you know, he's credited as a writer for something. He did a documentary. He did one TV movie, and boom – uh, but this guy's career started in 2002, gained quite a while um, as he's been trying to, you know what I mean, break in. Um, and that's one of the reasons, I guess, why we did this is because I know so many filmmakers, independent filmmakers, who've just gotten so discouraged and don't realize that we are in a revolution right now, an independent yeah. filmmaking revolution. And I am every day getting more and more excited about being able to make films in this particular environment, in this era, because this is going to be this kind of is the closest thing we've had since 
the era of the directors of the 70s where you had Scorsese and Lucas and and uh, who else was there? Darabon and, and uh, yeah, what, I just people. read. I just read somewhere or heard somewhere somebody said the age of the auteur is over and it's all about big business. But I think that the opposite is true. That in fact there is a sort of new dawning of a new age of an auteur. Where you know, I mean, granted the the, the commerce will always have a say in the final product, but there there's a lot of opportunity out there for young young filmmakers with a vision. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Look at those two guys from the Han Solo movie. But there's, you know, a couple of young hot directors with their own sort of style of working. And I guess Kathleen Kennedy and Disney said, yeah, it's not going to work on this project, fellas. And they, you know, they, they parted ways. But, uh, you know, sometimes it does work out. It's just, it's just really an exciting time. And I encourage filmmakers to take advantage of them. And when, when, when in the eighties, when when Chris and I were teens and you know growing up and 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 our idols were those people on the screen, we were big right. fans of of all genres of, of of film, and you know the only way to reach a worldwide audience was you had to work your way into the system. Now there's this wonderful thing called YouTube, where I can speak to people worldwide. That's unbelievable. That is unreal, and so it's it's a it's a very vibrant time for for filmmakers, and that's what the podcast centers on. It centers on a very positive edge. We want to encourage people to pick up the camera, get out there, and start filming. And the best episodes, I mean, are yet to come. Uh, we have our episode nine and ten is a is a very revealing interview with an, an independent filmmaker, Eduardo Sanchez, director of the Blair Witch Project, who who has, who, you know, for a, a long time in Hollywood had the top grossing film on return on it based on ROI than any other film produced until Paranormal Activity. It took another found footage film to beat him at his own game. Uh, but Blair Witch was actually right. the, the highest profiting film of all time. And that was an independent filmmaker who made this film in, you know, three or four weeks. That's crazy. That's just nuts. You'd think, well, yeah, no, it's got to be one of the Star Wars films or Titanic. But Yeah, I, I mean, it was amazing. I remember when that movie first came out and, you know, how much it blew up. And considering, you know, that, you know, they made it for so little money and it made so much money, um, it kind of gave hope for, um, you know, smaller filmmakers everywhere that kind of just thought that, wow, if they can do this and it can make this much money and it can be this popular, well, maybe maybe there's hope for me after all. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, it did it did a lot. And I mean, of course, you know, found footage exploded after that, you know, and, you know, uh, and, and there were a lot of good ones and there was a few bad ones, um, <laughs> but, um, or, or vice versa. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it, it definitely became, um, you know, the, the it market, you know, uh, everyone was into found footage movies. Yeah, and it's still, it's still, I mean, it's, it's almost become its own. I guess it has become its own subgenre too. I mean, it's. I think it was so. sort of a, a filmmaking conceit, you know, a, a, a way of telling a story. But the found footage. I mean, with you know, Cloverfield and 
and uh, what was the one that the, the, the kid becomes superheroes? What was that called? Chronicle. Um, Chronicle. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's gone in a lot of different directions and still be used very successfully and very effectively uh, when it's done right. And wasn't Chronicle directed by Coppola's son? His his son was involved in some way. I don't know if he was a producer or a director. But, I mean, here you have somebody whose father is a legend, and he's breaking into the business the same way the rest of us are. Well, Sophia Coppola did pretty well herself. Well, no, the, yeah, but this well, was I, his son, was, if uh, I recall correctly. He had his hands. No, you know what? I think Chronicle was um, – that was Max Landis. Was that John Landis' kid? Oh, okay. My apologies. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, well, so, speaking of Sophia Coppola, one of our our upcoming uh, uh, episodes is going to be about uh, – or, or maybe our whole next season. I, it's up that we haven't decided yet. But it's going to be about women in film and, uh, you know, why uh, why the industry tends to, I say, denigrate them. But they're, you know, they're all sort of relegated to the side. So there's uh, going to be a second season of um, Cryptocast? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we decided we really enjoyed the format, the the episodic format, so we know that there's a beginning and an end, <laughs> uh, and that it'll stand on its own, you know. And and uh, I we want to talk about topics that are hot and but that are uh, that are changing before our very eyes. And I think there's a lot going on right now with women in film. They're demanding a lot more. They're demanding to be paid, you know, equally to their male uh, co-stars. Um, I just read, uh, yeah, as they should. I just remember reading, there was a recent article in the Hollywood Reporter, and I honestly cannot remember which actress it was, but the rest of her male co-stars in the, on the project took a pay cut so that they would be pay, all be paid equally. So this is, uh, this is, I'm sorry? It's a good for them. Oh yeah, I, I, you know, this is this is happening, and women in film is is a is a big topic, and so we decided that that's really what we're gonna what we're gonna focus on for Crypticast series two, uh, which we'll be uh, recording starting in February of uh, 2018, um, and we'll, we might do a couple of you know one-off episodes here and there if we have requests from filmmakers. Um, but uh, but I can't speak enough. I, I have to give a big shout-out and a thank you to Ed Sanchez. Uh, his interview is extremely revealing. Talk about somebody who literally, you know, strips down and tells it like it is. Uh, this He shares stories that I personally have never heard him talk about. Uh, and, and, you know, Chris and I have known Ed since high school. Um, there was a lot going on behind the scenes in, in the Blair Witch Project. There was a lot going on behind the scenes with egos, um, you know, a lot changes once you start making money. <laughs> Life completely changes. Oh, yeah. And he really kind of dives into uh, something that we obviously couldn't talk about because we're not in a position where our film has taken off and skyrocketed, whereas Blair Witch certainly did. And I think people are going to get a real thrill out of his conversation. So, um, oh, yeah. The next, yeah. A next lot, of, two a lot ep- of wonderful stories to tell. The next two episodes we have, episodes uh, episodes one through six, which kind of deal with pre-production, production, branding a company, the state of current Hollywood. They're already released. You can uh, hear those at uh, Crypticast, uh, crypticpictures.com. Just click on the Crypticast link, or you can go to iTunes. You can find Crypticast on iTunes. 
Um, but our next two episodes, episode seven and eight, deal with the power of hype and the rise of VOD and how this is such an exciting time for independent filmmakers to break into the industry. And then we wrap with uh, with Ed's interview, so we're we're real jazzed about it. Really jazzed about it. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm we thank you, Mike, for have... having us on board. I've listened to the first six episodes, uh, and um, I mean, you know, I I sat there in like complete amazement. Like, you guys really, really did a great job. I mean, you touched on, you know, um, you know, really everything that you guys went through, and uh, it was very informative. And you know, I can't wait for. Uh, I'm very interested to the for the next episode, um, the um, about the one with power, power of hype or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that one, so I'm very interested to listen to that. And of course, you know, the main event. Yeah, so um, you know, I, haven't, the, I haven't heard it since we recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, good stuff, man. I mean, you know, kudos to you for for putting this out there, and you know, uh, and, and putting it out there for anyone to listen to for free, for that matter. Um, so it's, it's good stuff. And, um, I, if I was, uh, you know, I would definitely recommend it to any independent filmmaker to, you know, take a listen to and, and kind of get inspired, um, you know, by it. It's I, funny I that so. you, go, yeah, go no, go, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, you go ahead and knock it out. No, I was going to say, I hope so, because that's the, the reason we did it is that, you know, we, we sort of did it the hard way. Um, First of all, by waiting so long to make our movie, I mean we're in our forties now. You know, we should have been doing this when we were in our twenties, and we we tried a couple of times. We tried to make a feature, and it, you know, for one reason or another, didn't work out. But we just never finished it, and we just lost uh, lost our our will to finish it because we got depressed and thought, oh, this isn't going to work out. And uh, when Ed made Blair Witch, and suddenly. You know, a friend of ours saw the cover of Time Magazine, which I knew blew his mind. He talked about that in the podcast. Um, we thought, wow, the, the little guy can still make it. And I think finally it was, you know, Steve at Sony said, why don't you guys just go do it? Just make it. And Mark and I looked at each other and said, yeah, why don't we just go do it? <laughs> and we, we did, you know, we just piece by piece put it together over several years. And we did it. We finished a movie. And, uh, you know, that's, if nothing else, if we both drop dead tomorrow, at least Tubestone could say he made a movie, you know. Um, <laughs> but that's that we want to share this information with other people who are probably, you know, just bumming out and not finishing their projects the same, re- same way we didn't because we didn't have somebody there saying, hey, look, I've been through it. Here's what you can do. Don't give up. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And we want to be the light at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> and and, and no, hey, I just I just want to mention, uh, hey, age is just a number, you know. I'm in my forties. <laughs> you guys are in your forties, you know. I mean, it shouldn't stop anyone, you know. Whether you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, you know, if you want to go out right. and make a movie, just do it. You know, yeah. there's there's no age limit on when you can start doing it. You can do it at any point in life as long as you're still breathing. That's right. And in fact, in his, his book, which uh, you should absolutely read this if you haven't already, is uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Crew, where it was just at the very beginning of his career. And it's, it's a wonderful read because you can see him going from, you know, literally making a movie by himself. It was him and one friend in Mexico. They were shooting mariachi 
and uh, then suddenly starts getting attention. And he's just keeping a journal through all this, and it's fascinating to read. But at the end, he gives a sort of pep talk, and he says, you want to be a filmmaker? Great. You're a filmmaker. You know, go print a business card if you want to. But, you know, the minute you decide to make a film, you're a filmmaker, you know, and go, just go out and do it. It's never been easier. It's never been easier. There are people now making films on their phones. You know, I think I talked about this in the first episode of, of uh, the cast where I said this, this quote from Francis Coppola said, I hope someday everybody can make movies and maybe somebody will make a beautiful movie with their father's camcorder or something. And, and the professionalism of, of the film industry will be destroyed. And to some extent that has happened and is happening. And uh, we're very lucky to be doing this at this time, like Mark said. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, you mentioned, Mike, Mike about uh, you, you were excited that this is something that we provided for free. And that was interesting that you mentioned, it, uh, mentioned that because one of the other comments that Kevin Smith made at this Smodcast that he was doing that Chris attended was he was talking about how the, the current generation expects things for free. Um, I guess we can thank um, – Napster for Napster. that, uh, you know, and so and and so forth. But there's an entire generation out there that doesn't that feels they shouldn't have to or don't want to pay for product, um, and thus we have the whole piracy issue, and and you know that's all thanks to the the, the digital uh, horizon that 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 we've, you know, what I mean, finally uh, finally encountered. Um, but so what Chris and I realized was, well, we weren't going to give our film away for free. That we were we were we worked too hard on to just hand over and, and and put it you know slap it on YouTube and give away, but there there is a valuable uh, there are valuable lessons that we learned along the way. There is something that we can share for free, and um, I think Kevin Smith is right. The podcast has you know we've 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 encountered a whole new realm of fan base because of the podcast where people who wouldn't have otherwise known about us hey look it finally got us on the back on the phone with you didn't it for crying out loud and that's a good thing we we should have been you know we should be in touch with with people like you mike more often i mean we all we're all in this game together we should be sharing ideas and and you know what i mean and pulling together to to make the you know great product whether it be on podcasts or or in the film uh, industry but um yeah. but that's i mean that's that's what that's what Kevin Smith was talking about you he it's not so much that you're doing something for free but you are engaging and free makes it accessible to everyone and so it's going to open up a whole new audience for you yeah no i mean it, that's the thing you know and you know i love that there is so much content out there for free um, you know, whether it be, you know, podcast, well, especially podcasts, but, you know, um, you're talking about like, you know, um, movies and, and, and different, um, you know, whether it be like television shows or, or movies that are all streaming online. And there's so much of it now. Um, and, and that's a great thing. But I think it's also a double-edged sword. And I think about this every once in a while, and I'm not sure if I'm correct, but, you know, the more that is accessible and the more that's out there um you know the creativity um can bloom without a doubt but i i think it would it's going to be harder and harder and i might be wrong about this but to to actually 
um, for filmmakers to actually make money um, when there's becoming more and more of them. Um, your thoughts on this? I, I agree. I, I, just, I, I agree to some extent. And I think I touched on that in one of our uh, cryptocasts was uh, what the comment I had at the time was that uh, because Francis Coppola's uh, dream has come true and that anybody who wants to can make a movie now, uh, you know, and again, the roots of this are, you know, back when we were kids, again, if you wanted to make a movie, you had to have a camera, a movie camera and film and sound equipment. And you had to pay for that film to be processed, and you had to have an editing table to cut the film together. I mean, it's we were lucky enough when we were in high school that we could uh, work on VHS. And at school, we actually had uh, an editing uh, bay that we could put the you know VHS tapes and, and edit stuff back and forth. And uh, that was a real sort of techno- technological luxury for us to be able to edit that way. Um, I, I mean, I can be perfectly honest and say I've never sliced a piece of film in my life. Uh, but it's it's even easier now. I mean, like I said, people are doing it on their phones. You know, I have uh, at work I have an iPad with editing software on it, and I can cut something together if I have to. Uh, and right. The result the result of this is it's so easy to put something together that now everybody and their brother is is making a little movie, and that's great in terms of creativity. And I think the positive outcome of that is that the cream will always rise. You know, uh, the hard part is separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Right. Uh, but, but eventually, you know, after a you know, year, two years, three years go by, somebody will say, wow, this one was really good. You know, for some reason, just in terms of quality or performance or whatever, this project stood out against the background of all the other stuff. And uh, that, I think those are the people who are going to continue to move forward in the industry. Well, I think I um, I think I heard Quentin Tarantino um, do an interview where you know he was talking about the fact that anyone can make a film, but you know not everyone can make a great film. And if if you're you know if you're gonna be out there, um, you know, and you want to just make a film, that's fine. But you know if you want to find your vision. And really believe in your project, you know, I mean, and not everyone can do it and everyone strives to do it, but I mean, the possibility is there, you know, the, you know, the hope is there for, you know, people like you and me and, you know, Joe Blow down the street that, you know, everyone has that ability, but like you said, the, the cream rises to the top and, you know, yeah. we, we, we can dream to, to be that, um, that cream. <laughs> you know, I, I agree that the, the market is, is oversaturated for better or for worse. It, and, but, and that doesn't necessarily bother me so much as since we're on this topic because, and, and Chris, you might have to calm me down because I might go on a rant. Here. <laughs> so, so you have these, YouTube artists, and believe me, I am not. Our, our podcast is all about putting anyone down. We don't put anyone down. Hollywood, yay for Hollywood for doing it the way they do it. I'm a Hollywood fan. I love Hollywood filmmaking. I go to the cinema once a week, so you know, I, I'm all for. I'm 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 not jaded in any way uh, with either the system or the independent scene or any of that. But what I often find when I go to YouTube is 
right, there will be a quality product. So an independent filmmaker, for example, will send me an anthology short that they're working on, a, 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 a seven, eight-minute piece. I'll watch it, and I'll go, damn, that's pretty good. And then I'll look at the hit count, and you'll have maybe 892 hits. Then I'll go to some stupid idiotic video of some lady sitting on a toilet singing a song, sitting on a toilet, uh-huh, sitting on a toilet, no joke, and she'll have over 70 million hits. And I think to myself, what, what is that? That's not oversaturation. Is it, is it that people don't, can't vet good material anymore? Is it that most of the world isn't interested in the craft and art of good cinema? But they just want to be quickly entertained and, and move on to the next cat video. I, I don't – this bothers – this keeps me up at night. I have to be <laughs> honest. Because I can't figure I think out it's, what it is. It's, it's not a yeah, – I don't think that, that phenomenon is not a case of people saying, ooh, this is a quality video of a woman singing on the toilet. I think it's uh, – this is funny. Wow, you've got to see this. And it just kind of takes off. It, it goes viral that, you know, people sharing it with their friends because it's stupid and funny. I mean, you're right. If you watch a video of some guy jumping into a cactus and it has 10 million hits, well, I mean, shit, at that point, <laughs> YouTube's going to pay you, you know. So for well, that yes, these, thing, that's what I'll these people are monetizing yeah. their videos and making a fortune. Yeah. And, and they're and not filmmakers. They're not even entertainers. They uploaded no. a joke and made money off of a joke. So that's, and that's something that we need to that, well that we need to crack that somehow. We need to capitalize on that. That's precisely that's that's what I'm talking about. What is it that attracts people? Is it comedy? Great. Then I'll make a comedy if y'all want to give me seventy million hits. That's totally fine. But I, we're adept enough. We can pull it off. But I I I want to understand it. It hasn't gone away. It's just increased. It's snowballed. It's gotten worse. The videos with the because, I mean, everybody talks about YouTube as a place where you just go watch cat videos, you know. Um, and some of that is true. And, you know, guilty as charged. I'm a cat owner. I love cute cat videos. But, <laughs> but I, I, need, I need to understand this because, like you said, it needs to be cracked. There is, there's something there that we're missing. And, you know, well, it's, perhaps it's Vine had the right idea. Let's make six-second clips. You can only make a six-second clip, and but Vine has already gone bankrupt. So maybe that's not the answer, you know? No, but, the, the, you know, there are people who are trying to. I mean, uh, Will Ferrell, he did Funny or Die, which I think is still going strong. And it's just, you know, little funny videos that people put together. And it's typically people who are already established, you know, comedians or actors putting things together. Um most part. But, uh, this, so, this, so then how do you convert this? That is something this, that can be tapped into. Yeah, how do you convert this to a cinematic uh, uh, thoroughfare uh, or the thir- cinematic message, as the case may be, something that reaches people, that touches people, that, you know, I, I mean, I, this, this just frustrates, frustrates me to no end because there's so many, there's such good quality. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, the the uh, the uh, winners of the um, uh, Grammy Awards was a small trio, and they they honored. They said this is this is this statuette is an honor to everybody in the industry who we know who is 
really good and yet hasn't been recognized because you know as there are in the film industry and as there are in the music industry and, and just about any industry there are greats out there who will never get any recognition for their prowess and that's so fr- i mean it's just so frustrating that there could be great independent filmmakers out there who can't get more than 899 hits for some really yeah. good filmmaking you know yeah but at least it, it can what? be seen i mean think about you know, there, there's a great documentary about the uh, the session players who, for years, would play behind. You know, Paul Simon and Aretha Franklin. What the hell is the name of that show? Um, Empire. It the, no, it was called the Swampcat. No. It was the, these guys who uh, they were just backup players. They play one guy played guitar, another guy played the drums, and they were just the backup musicians for whoever happened to be singing this particular album and uh, they were never recognized. Some of them did a few, uh, you know, a few of these backup guys actually became uh, talented singers uh, or performers in their own right. I think uh, Stevie Winwood might've been one of them, uh, but they were just there. They, you know, they got paid, they did their thing and well, and they went home and they never craved that recognition. And so they never really missed it. Does that make sense? Well, let's get back to Mike's question, or his the, the point of the of of the of this particular part of the discussion was, how do you make money? And that's my concern is that you there are people that are you know getting seventy million hits on YouTube. They've monetized the video, and they can easily make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a year with that many hits. Well, we can even do a, that. I mean, if they've got subscribers in front of the camera and eat a handful of uh, ghost peppers, then we'll have. <laughs> Half a million hits in a couple of weeks. All right. Cryptic Pictures' next video on YouTube is going to be a farting video, and we're going to see how many <laughs> hits we can get. So, hey, Mike, this is this is a perfect example of what Chris and I will do until the wee hours of the morning. We'll be on the phone bitching and moaning to one another about the oh, state yeah. of independent filmmaking. Um, so we didn't no. need to exclude you from the conversation. Sorry. <laughs> no, you know, and that's absolutely fine. And, and I'm I'm right there with you guys, you know. I mean, you know, there's there's got to be an answer to the question, or maybe there doesn't have to be an answer to the question. But, um, you know, it lies somewhere between a woman on a toilet and cute, you know, and I don't know where <laughs> in between there. It's, it's, you know, well, but it's I'll somewhere you, in there. Here's a little tidbit of, of information that we discussed in um, our – you know what? I, I believe we discussed it in our episode eight, so it hasn't yet been released. So we're going to give your, your fan base a, a, a little sneak peek here. But um, one of the things that we learned on, with regards to making money in, in the independent film scene is don't give your film away to the first person that comes knocking on your door and says, I can make you some money. Because the fact of the matter is they can no longer – distributors can no longer make you money. They will. They cannot. It's it's impossible, and this is why. In oh, yeah. our episode eight, we talk about the the fall of the DVD, which is where the financial market was in Hollywood. It, it was in ticket sales and DVD sales. When DVD sales collapsed, what replaced it was the digital world. Except the digital world, whereas before you could pay fifteen dollars for a DVD. Now people are paying ten dollars a month to stream. So the profits were cut significantly. 
And so when you contact a distributor and say, I want you to distribute my film, it doesn't make a difference whether your deal is a 50-50 deal or a 70-30 deal. You are not going to make a dime, period. And so our, and you can hear more about that in our Rise of the VOD episode 8, but here's the trick around that. Distribute it yourself. You no longer need the middleman. You really no longer need the aggregator unless you want your, your DVD in Walmart. And in that case, you're hoping for exposure because you're not going to really make any money. But you can release on DVD. You can release on and, – and still retain your 70-30 split with Apple. You can release it by yourself. You can, it can be done. And um, it, it takes a little work. So if you're a lazy filmmaker and you are totally uninterested in the business side of things, you're going to find it difficult to, to make any cash, to have any cash flow. But for those who are dedicated to holding on to their product like we did for, for almost five years now, we haven't we refused to give it away. And now we're about to release, and we're about to release it on our own terms with a good 70-30 split between us and iTunes. That's, that's profit set right there because yeah. the minute we sign with somebody, we only get half of that 70 if it's a 50-50 deal, because the other half go into the distributor. And then we have to pay for fees on top of that, and you just you never see a dime of it. Well, guys, we're counting down to our last seconds. I just wanted to let you know we got like 30 seconds oh, gotcha. to go. Cool. Um, but, uh, take you know. away. <laughs> well, if you want to hear more, tune in to Cryptocast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's been fantastic talking to you guys. You know, I wish we had more time, but you know what? We'll make some more time. I'll have you guys on again. We'll we'll continue this conversation. Oh, we'd love to. And thanks for having us back. It's good to talk to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. All right, man. Thanks, guys. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> <laughs>